Bandwidth for Changelog is provided by Fastly. Learn more at Fastly.com, and we're hosted on Linode servers. Head to linode.com changelog. This episode of The Changelog is brought to you by our friends at Sentry. They show you everything you need to know to find and fix errors in your applications. Don't rely on your customers to report your errors. That's not the way you do it. Use Sentry. You can start tracking your errors today for free. They support React, Angular, Ember, Vue, Backbone, Node frameworks like Express and Koa, and many, many other languages. That's just JavaScript I mentioned. View actual code and stack traces, including support for source maps. You can even prompt your users for feedback when front end errors happen, so you can compare their experience to the actual data. Hit the changelaw.com slash sentry, start tracking your errors today for free. No credit cards required. Get off the ground with their free plan, and when you're ready to expand your usage, simply pay as you go. Once again, changelaw.com slash sentry. Tell them Adam from the Changelog sent you, and now onto the show. Hello and welcome to the Changelog. This show is about getting to the heart of open source technologies and the people who create them. And on today's show, we're talking about GitHub's recent open source survey with Franny Zlotnick, Nadia Ekbal, and Michael Rogers. You may know Nadia and Michael from our other podcast called Request for Commits, changelaw.com slash RFC. We cover the backstory and key insights of this open data project from GitHub, which sheds light on the broader open source community's attitudes, experiences, and backgrounds of those who use, build, and maintain open source software. We have a fun show today, a different show than maybe our normal episode of The Changelog. Jared's sitting out. He's got an awesome baseball game to attend with his kids. And uh, we have this cool show called Request for Commits. Honey Ekbal and Michael Rogers host that show. And today we have a show kind of peeling back the layers of this open source survey. And Michael, you're here. So might as well say hello. Hello. It's nice to be on The Changelog. Yeah, it's (laughs) it's been a while. It's been a while. and. On an episode, or I guess the after show of Request for Commits, we were sort of chatting. This was like earlier this week, I think. And uh, Nadia, you and Franny have done this cool thing. And, and many of the people, too, will talk about that. But this open source survey conducted by GitHub. So, Nadia, you can say hello as well since you're here. Hi. And we also have Franny here, which, uh, Franny, you're in data at, uh, at GitHub. What, is, what, what do you work on there? Um, I am a data scientist. Uh, I work on sort of long, mid to long-term research projects for internal and, in this case, sometimes external audiences. And what is it about data that gets you excited? Uh, I really love being the first person in the world to see a thing. Um, so I, I like to like know something before anybody else does. Hmm. Interesting. And uh, carrying somewhat of a tradition of this show, we like to kind of dig a little bit into somebody's backstory. So, like, you know, what's your story? What uh, you're in data, but you work at GitHub. What's some of your backstory that we can share with the audience to kind of give some context to who you are? Well, I uh, am. My background is academic social science. Uh, I was trained as a political scientist, and I got interested in computational social science, which basically means doing social science with data sets that are too big to kind of handle with the normal tools. And so I started doing a little bit of 
CS and uh, data mining type methodologies. And that kind of led accidentally to uh, working at GitHub. <laughs> uh, I actually interviewed before I knew what a GitHub was. Um, <laughs> and uh, yeah, I just, I sort of fell into it accidentally. Um, but it, it appealed to me because um, really the fascinating data on GitHub is all really social data. It's about how people are working together to build things. And so that it's actually like a really fantastic place to be doing data work from a social science perspective. I have an interesting history with GitHub to some degree because I remember sitting in San Francisco in a random office with uh, Chris Wanstroth and uh, Tom Preston Warner uh, conducting an interview for a podcast called The Web 2.0 Show. And this was like literally a month and a half after GitHub launched. So it's it's been a trek, you know, so GitHub is has evolved over the years. Like it started out as social coding and has done all these cool things to like raise, I guess, the bar of open source, but also make it so much more accessible to the world. So GitHub has evolved tremendously. At first launch, it didn't need, maybe it did, maybe it did need data scientists, I don't know, but uh, you can totally see a true need now. And then obviously the survey, opensourcesurvey.org, I guess that redirects to 2017 because you have plans for future versions of this. Is that true? Yes. Yeah. Mm-hmm. So, so like we're in, the, we're in a new world where, where GitHub is essentially the, many might say the epicenter of open source and now needing folks like Franny to, to help make sense and see data first and hopefully put back the layers of, of what's important out there. One of the things that I find really interesting about this data set too, is that, you know, GitHub changed open source and now those people that are flooding in are sort of changing GitHub a little bit too. And it's really interesting to see some insights into what they think. How did you, like, how did the survey start? Like, there's a there's a lot of academic surveys out there. Um, so I'm curious, like, what the motivation behind this particular one was. This particular survey was uh, um, kind of the idea of um, a guy who used to work on the open source team at GitHub named Arvin Smith, who was our... Uh, open data person, program manager for open data. And I think he's been on, I think you guys have interviewed him before. Yeah. Yep. Um, it was in season one. Um, yeah. So he, uh, he came to me um, several months ago, eight, nine months ago, I think maybe more. Uh, and um, had this idea to use the access that we had um, to the open source community to gather high quality data for researchers, um, and in particular, uh, academic researchers, um, studying open source uh, development and processes, um, help them get better data than they're able to get otherwise. Because you're right, there are a ton of uh, surveys out there because this is a fascinating domain. Like it, it's a weird and unique form of production of uh, public goods that uh, a lot of the world's critical services uh, are based on. Uh, and people are really interested in understanding how and why people participate or don't in this community. Um, but it's hard to get good data on it. Um, why, why is that? Like what, what makes it hard to get good data? Um, is it selecting the right kind of people or themselves selecting or? Yeah. The, so the, for the types of questions that people are interested in, it, a large part of the problem is getting access to the right people. So this is a community that's kind of over-surveyed. People get a lot of emails um, 
asking them to take surveys uh, and at some point they get tired of doing it. And so it's hard to get the people you want to talk to to take a survey. So sampling is hard. Uh, unbiased way is really difficult to do. Um, so generally what people have done is they'll go through, uh, you know, public records of open source projects and look for people who have committed or otherwise participated in a project and then just email them. But that mean that means you miss this uh, huge community of people that we know are there who are using projects and looking at them, but not necessarily actively contributing to them. And we think that that's a really important part of the community as well. But you, they, unless they leave a visible uh, artifact of having been there, there's no way for the researchers to know that they're there. So by having access to the traffic going to these uh, projects, uh, we have an ability to get to people in a way that um, is virtually impossible for most other people. Yeah, it, it certainly makes sense to be GitHub and conduct this interview because otherwise it... On the outside, it may, like you had just said, it it's difficult to sort of seamlessly access those kind of people. Let's rewind a bit and and kind of touch base on exactly what this is. So this is an open source survey conducted by GitHub uh, in collaboration with researchers from academia, industry, other folks from the community. The purpose was to gather high quality insights and data from those who are interacting with or even just checking out open source projects. A lot of responses, a little over 5,000 responses, not only from you know GitHub's data pool, but also it seems like uh, random samples from other communities that aren't the GitHub platform, uh, and then open sourcing that data set. Is that right? Uh, so it's um, a little over 5,500 uh, randomly sampled uh, respondents from uh, open source repos on GitHub, and then another 500-ish responses from a non-random sample of I communities see. off GitHub. So we know that not all open source is on GitHub. There's um, a bunch of very important projects that predate GitHub or um, have work on other platforms for lots of reasons, uh, and we wanted them to be part of the uh, the sample as well. It's harder for us to access them. Um, for obvious reasons, uh, so that that sample is non-random, uh, but uh, we did we did try to make an effort to make sure that they're they're represented in the data as well. Right, and when you say like random and non-random, that's really important to say for what reason? As somebody who doesn't do data much, why is it so important to make that distinction? Yeah, so typically the way these sorts of the open source surveys have been done uh, is to use opt-in sampling. Basically, somebody makes a survey and then they publicize it in lots of places like Twitter or on a website. Um, and they basically kind of broadcast that they're doing a survey and ask people to come to them. And that means that people go out of their way to say, I want you to hear my opinion. And the people who do that are kind of weird, right? They're people who have really strong opinions on things or they're people who think taking a survey is a fun way to spend 15 minutes, which is weird. Uh, <laughs> right. Like there's, there's lots of reasons why that's not uh, that gets you a pretty biased sample. It gets you a like very opinionated sample. Um, it's subject to um, basically like uh, kind of gaming. Like people will try to send the link to specific groups that they want um, to take the survey and, but maybe not other people. Um, and so the way you get a high quality data that is, closer to representative of the whole community is you randomly select people, um, hopefully in a way that gives everybody who's there uh, an equal probability of 
uh, being invited to take the survey. With that in mind, you've got quite a few questions. So maybe not a 15 minute survey, maybe half hour, 45 minutes. What's this is 50 questions. What's the rough average that you would expect for someone to dedicate towards answering this? This is actually, um, uh, it was like an 11 to 15 minute survey, depending on which set of branches you hit. So if you answered some questions in a certain way, you'd get some additional questions. Uh, but the average time was something like 11 minutes. And that was intentional. Like a really long survey is really tedious and uh, taxing. And we wanted to, you, you get better data if uh, people don't find it really annoying to take your survey. Uh, so um, we made a big effort to make sure that uh, we use um, almost exclusively closed response uh, questions that we wrote them in a really straightforward way that it was easy to take the survey uh, as fast as possible, um, given the volume of stuff we wanted to cover, uh, so that it wouldn't take up too much of people's time. And we had a, actually a really good completion rate. It was something like 50% of the people who uh, started taking it finished it, which wow. is really high for a survey of this length. That is really high because I've, was- I've visited lots of surveys and I'm like, no. I was nervous about that. I was like afraid people weren't going to take it because it was a really long survey. But yeah, it, it turned out to be great. Well, surveys in general are pretty tough. Mike, you, you may have some experience with Node Foundations. I know you you do surveys there or have done surveys there each year. Is, were you involved in that at all? Yeah, yeah. I mean, we, we we did the one where you kind of blast everybody and you try to get everybody to to get in on the survey. Um, the the one thing that we do to try to quantify what kinds of respondents we're getting is that we ask a question: How many years have you been using Node? Um, and we have pretty good we have a pretty good idea of what the growth trajectory is. So we know, you know, how many users in the overall community have only been using it a year, two years, three years. Um, and so we know that the respondents tend to be people who are in this slice of our community that is very high. Um, and so we, we don't consider the results to be, you know, representative of the entire community, Mm -hmm. more like representative of the people that have more experience because those are the people that end up filling out the survey. And we have a few other questions in there that, that help us kind of slice up the data to know which section of the community that it's addressing. Um, we don't really have any kind of mechanism to randomly select the way that GitHub can hear. Um, so they can really look at it and and get like a very truly representative sample. Yeah. And to be fair, there's also another, um, we have this problem of response bias too, where uh, not everyone we invite actually takes it. it. You know, so like some certain percentage of the people that we invited to take it actually did so. And so there's certainly ways in which the people who did decide to take it are different from the overall community. Um, for example, a huge percentage of people say that they are um, uh, maintainers or um, people have actually contributed that. Um, and we know that uh, we see in our traffic numbers that there are many, many more people who are just visiting or using repos without actually um, necessarily actively contributing to them. And they are not represented in the data in as high numbers as we see. So there's still this this sort of bias in who decides to participate. But because we invited in a random way, it's, it's uh, a better sample, not necessarily precisely representative, but it is uh, higher quality than uh, you would otherwise get. Let's find out where this came from, if you don't mind. I want to go deeper into the context, some of the insights discovered from this, but it sounds like this has been in the making for quite a while. You mentioned Arvon Smith, uh, also on season one of RFC. Great episode. We'll put that in the show notes, so go check that out. But um, this predates your getting hired there, Nadia. So like, where does this begin 
in terms of like motivation? What was the purpose? You know, what were the beginnings of this of this effort? Yeah, the motivation was really just to make data available for people to do interesting and good research on uh, this community. Um, it, it's good for us internally at GitHub if people are doing uh, research on what makes um, open source uh, sustainable and healthy. Uh, it's inter- The data is useful to us as well. Um, and we also have uh, interest in making sure that the data is available not just to researchers, but also broadly available to uh, the people who can uh, kind of do the most with it, which is the community itself. Um, so the idea was really just to use our uh, kind of unique position with regard to the community to be able to create high quality data that could then be used by other people to do interesting research and to help people make decisions on like what what their communities need um, and help people uh, kind of understand the different parts of their communities, you know, like help maintainers understand contributors, uh, help, uh, you know, contributors understand uh, users who don't necessarily contribute things like that. Can you go back to the moment to some degree? Like, uh, was it, uh, uh, some sort of message an email? Was it a face-to-face conversation? Like what was the original context for like, Hey, we should do this survey. We need to know this information and, and kind of who was there and what was, what was going on to sort of surface this, this desire? Uh, I think it was a, it was a video chat between me and Arvin. Um, he sent me a message. He just sent me a message, asked me to meet. And I think at this time, Arvin was doing his um, like nomadic thing. He was traveling around oh, the country yeah. in a van with his family. Right. Yes. Uh, and so I don't remember exactly where he was, but I was in our office, uh, and he was in a in a van somewhere. <laughs> it, it, last time I caught up, well, we caught up with him for RFC. He was in Canada, so that was about nine months ago. So it might have been then. It might have been then. Um, I think I remember there being some trees behind him. It looked really pretty. Canada's got a lot of trees. Uh, (laughs) um, And uh, he he just pitched this idea to me. He said, I would love to, if we could do a survey of open source, uh, do it well, you know, with rigorous academic standards, um, because there's a ton of data out there. um, You know, people are using... People really want to know these things, but they don't have the either the tools or the um, maybe the technical background to know how to do it in a high quality way. And it's impactful. People are using the data to make decisions about what they do um, or they're publishing papers on it. Um, can we do something that would provide good data, help get people interested in using our data for other types of things um, and also make sure that uh, when people are trying trying their best to make data-driven decisions uh, that they're using high-quality data. And I thought that sounded really interesting. I've mostly been working on um, internal-facing things, um, you know, the reports for internal people at the company, and it sounded like a really fun opportunity to learn more about open source because I'm not a domain expert in it, uh, and uh, to do something that would have a really wide audience and potentially a really large impact. After the break, we'll dive deep into the insights of this open source survey from GitHub. With more than 50 questions, this survey is by far one of the most widest range 
research topics GitHub has done to release as open data. So we're going to highlight some of the most actionable, important insights from this after this break. This episode of The Changelog is brought to you by TopTal, a global network of top freelance software developers, designers, and finance experts. If you're looking for contract or freelance opportunities, apply to join TopTal to work with top clients like Airbnb, Artsy, Zendesk, and more. When you join TopTal, you'll be part of a global community of developers who have the freedom and flexibility to live where they want, travel, attend TopTal events all over the world, and more. And on the flip side, if you're looking to hire developers, designers, or finance experts, TopTal makes it super easy to find qualified talent to join your team. Head to TopTal.com, that's T-O-P-T-A-L.com, and tell them Adam from the Changelog sent you. I'm, I'm kind of ready to dive into the insights a little bit. Is everybody else ready to dive into the insights? Do it, man. <laughs> Open it up, Michael. So uh, this first one about documentation is actually very interesting to me. Um, it, it seems like something obvious, right? Like, of course, docs are important, but everybody says that and, and nobody actually does a very good job of it. Um, and it, it's interesting here because the way that it's framed, you have a question about problems that are encountered in open source. And, um, you know, some of the other things you ask about other than documentation are, you know, unresponsiveness or dismissive responses in, in issues and, and, and PRs and things like that. And I know that across all the projects that are trying to take getting new contributors seriously, there's been a huge focus on improving that flow um, and making things nicer and easier to get in um, and maybe not so much on documentation. And now we're seeing this, this data that really shows that documentation is much, much higher. <laughs> um, like it's, you know, something like, what is it? 95, 96% of respondents. 93%. <laughs> 93%. Wow. <laughs> That's unbelievable. Yeah. So like, you know, you, it looks like, um, you know, more than just this question, y'all really dove into this to figure out, you know, what is going on here. So why don't you tell us like a little bit more about that? Uh, yeah. So um, one of the things that, um, is pretty well studied are the reasons why people do contribute to or otherwise engage with open source. Um, but, uh, a thing that hasn't been as well studied are the things that prevent people who, would like to, but are not necessarily contributing as much or in the ways that they want to. Uh, and so we devoted kind of a whole section of the survey to negative experiences in open source, which uh, is, I mean, probably kind of a bummer to take the survey and only get to talk about like the, the crappy things you encounter. Um, but it was where there is kind of a hole in the hole in the, um, the data that existed um, as I saw it. Um, uh, and also, uh, kind of more actionable than, uh, you know, like tell us all the wonderful things you get out of, out of doing open source. Like those are kind of self-evident. Like we know a lot about that already. Uh, what we don't know are more about like the types of things that get in people's way that make it hard for them to contribute. I like the tie of the, of, of tying it to our findings around, um, different groups that aren't traditionally super well represented open source value those processes more. And I thought that was like an important way to tie together, like why documentation matters to also like getting new contributors. Yeah. You, you made a particular point in here about um, English and how, you know, uh, what was it? 
nearly a quarter of, of uh, open source communities have less than very well English skills. So it's, it's not just about the doc. It's not saying, you know, all docs need to be in another language, but that it needs to be in a, in a form of English that is not really complicated. Right. That's a, that's something actually that uh, I personally discovered while at Node Interactive recently, Michael, when I was invited to come out there with y'all and do that. And I was talking to Shia Lu and she was, originally from China, but uh, works at Autodesk and had moved to San Francisco, but also kind of went back and forth, talked about the Great Firewall China, you know, the disconnection there, but she talked a really big deal about the difference of of accessibility to docs because of the language barrier, but then the time it takes for things to be translated, and by the time it is translated, or if it ever is, it's kind of too late. Yeah, yeah. The the way that we've kind of solved this in the Node project is just that a lot of people that speak other languages um, are contributors or committers in some way, and they watch doc changes. And so as doc changes happen, they make suggestions about the language to simplify it a little bit, to make it more easily translatable, but also that just makes it more understandable. I've noticed a lot of translations get out of date. I mean, probably not as much for Node, but for smaller projects where like a, a relatively common contribution or is someone volunteering to translate the docs, but then that's not a commitment to keeping them updated forever. So yeah, I see, I definitely see the value of if you're going to write in English, at least simplifying the language um, can make a big difference. So I saw a completely different uh, piece of research lately. Um, it tried to quantify all of the steps that a contributor to open source goes through, not just the visible ones like the pull request and each comment and things like that, but a lot of the the sort of invisible steps that they do on their own, like running the test locally and checking documentation. And I was kind of blown away by the number of times that they check some form of documentation in the project, right? Like <laughs> they try to find things that are similar. They try to like check the documentation or the code style and all these things. And so I, and that should have made me not very surprised when I saw that documentation was so important, but still, I, I don't think that I internalized it enough, <laughs> but like a, a huge part of the process of contributing and just going back to the documentation and reading it. Well, no one's too good for docs, right? I mean, <laughs> you're never expert I'm enough not. to not need docs is my point, right? Is is that no matter how good you are, it's like, what was the document? And how was that used? It, you're never, uh, you can't, if you can't keep it on your brain, you're superhuman. And I don't know, I don't know how you got there, but write a book about also it or just, something. It's like kind of, it's kind of dumb not to, like, why, why remember all this stuff when you can just refer to right. documentation when you need mm-hmm. it? Like, I don't want to waste that brain space. Right, <laughs> exactly. So, I mean, when we look at this, it sounds like you had 50 good questions, but from that, at least at the the public website, we got five kind of core highlighted actionable insights. One of them being documentation. Uh, Franny, you mentioned the negative interaction section. So there's, there's some insights around that, how open source is being used by the whole entire world, not just, you know, let's say San Francisco, for example, um, using and contributing to it to open source happens a lot, even on the job. And that uh, it's often the default when choosing open source software. Why, at least from the public website, only share those insights? What's the plan for future uh, insights being shared? Hmm, that's, a, that's a good question. Um, so I think uh, we wanted to highlight uh, some of the more actionable things. Um, to or ha- So things that we knew would be either like really highly interesting um, that people would really want to know about. So like the demographic stuff falls in that category. Um, some stuff that's really actionable, like write documentation, make sure that it's accessible to people um, with varying English skills. 
and then um, stuff that uh, was uh, kind of really strong signals in the data. Uh, it's certainly not uh, all that there is in there. And I think like a fully complete uh, treatment of all the data in there would be just overwhelming uh, and people would stop reading it. They, they wouldn't go through the whole thing. So we wanted to keep it like pretty limited to some key things and then uh, leave the rest of it open for other people to find and to research and publish on. Um, Cause the original idea was really the point was the data that we would be putting out the data for the research community and for the open source community to, uh, to, you know, do what they will with, um, and the 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 uh, kind of insight section was uh, more of a oh we found all this fascinating stuff we want to make sure that um, people actually do learn these things from there but it's kind of a, a small chunk of what's in there. Also, add for any any of those those like top five or whatever insights. Um, it's, it wasn't like one question to one insight. Each of those was a mix of probably like at least five questions per section of looking at the data and saying, oh, I mean, like, like the documentation part is interesting, but then the like, um, non-native English speakers is interesting. What does that mean together? And so some of that was already a little bit of an analysis and mixing together existing questions. Um, we did go through all of the questions, um, as a, as a group, just to see, given like Franny's experience with data and, um, my experience with like open source. And we had a few other folks in there too, of, of just saying like, given our collective knowledge, what do we think is really interesting and actionable here? But yeah, it's definitely not um, complete either. I, I think it's a little timely too. Like as we've been recording season two of RFC, we've been able to talk to a lot more people that have raised money for their projects, for, for fairly mm -hmm. big kind of notable projects. And a recurring theme seems to be we have this money and we don't know what to do with it because there's not a lot of like really discrete specific things that you can spend it on. But documentation is one of those things. Like you can hire somebody to just write better documentation. <laughs> yeah. Um, that's like a really actionable thing. And, and, you know, armed with this data to say like, actually this is the most important thing. This is probably something that we should spend money on. Like that's, that's really actionable and really timely. That makes a lot of sense because we often hear we're not really, sh we have money. How do we spend it and do we spend it on staffing more people to, you know, put more developers behind a project or we, you know, do we embrace or, um, you know, invite community into this? Do we do events? Do we do meetups? Do we do swag? It's, it's like, there's so many unknowns out there. And so being able to like have, you know, unbiased uh, opinions on what really matters certainly gives better waypoints for maintainers and community leaders in open source to take action upon, you know, with, without something like this, you're sort of just shooting in the dark. It was fun to see a lot of common wisdom that gets passed around and seeing how that maps to the data that we found. And, and some of them were really spot on. I was actually thinking of you, Michael, in the like negative interactions um, mm -hmm. findings, because you, you had this tweet from a while ago that was like, don't tolerate asshole. Oh, sorry, Adam. No, it's okay. Go ahead. <laughs> <laughs> hey, heads up if you're in a car with a kid you got your kids around mute it or whatever go ahead <laughs> just repeating his tweet verbatim um it's something like don't don't tolerate assholes in open source because new people that see that will will want to walk away or something like that you probably remember it better than i do but 
Um, yeah, well, there, there's an interesting yeah. Venn diagram that goes with it, which is that, basically like, you know, yeah, yeah, like assholes are this really small dot. And then there's, you know, people who tolerate assholes and then, you know, and then a much larger bubble of nice people. And and some nice people will tolerate that kind of behavior, but far more just won't. And so you're you're excluding this much bigger group when you sort of like accommodate people who are toxic. Right. And that was totally what we had, had found about smaller portion of people have personally experienced something, but a lot more people have seen something happen. And there's a pretty like significant number of people that stop contributing to a project when they see behavior like that. And so I thought that was it was good to actually have data to say this really does matter and that that common practice or um, common wisdom is actually true and useful. It's interesting to see how much negativity is out there. I mean, even 18 percent of respondents having that's 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 enough. I mean, it's a lot. Yeah. So, it's a <laughs> huge amount. That means like <laughs> if you interact with open source 100 times, 18 times out of those 100, you're going to get you know, some sort of negative reaction. I got negativity today. I mean, it, it happens. <laughs> hold, hold, hold on. You're, you're interpreting the data a little bit off there. So that, that's, yeah, this is, this is of individual good. people, not individual interactions. <laughs> well, that's 18% of response. Oh, I guess you're right. Okay. So it's not, oh, okay. You're right. You're right. I'll, I'll stand corrected then, but I'm sure my number is just as accurate. I, still so, <laughs> I mean, it's definitely, it's, it's not great. It's definitely higher than you would want it to be, but it's also not out of line with, data from similar communities, especially online communities. Like this is, it's not necessarily um, just open source that has this problem. Um, But I think the visibility of open source, like everything being open uh, and kind of having a little bit of a viral aspect to it, like people send, send uh, really like um, kind of fiery issues to each other um, just to, you know, take a look at what happened over here. Um, that's, uh, the visibility might be higher, but, um, uh, this kind of like people being jerks to each other on the internet is a thing that happens in a lot of places. I, I think one of, one of the insights here is like you have 50% of people have witnessed negative behavior and 21% of them have actually left a project because of that. Mm-hmm. Just, for, just yeah. from the witnessing, not even necessarily yeah. the being, you know, the victim of it. Well, that's the truth. It's, it's like, if you, if you just witness the negative behavior, you're going to assume that that's a common thing or a standard or, or it, it happens often, especially if you see negativity unresponded to, you know, like allowing it, you know, that's, that's a difference. It's like, that's why I think maybe your tweet, Michael, and not your mention of it may be right on point because if you allow somebody to be that jerk, then, you know, you're, you're not so much just as at fault, but, somebody needs to say, you know, Hey, that's not how we act here. And I think that's probably a good reason why a lot of code of conducts have become more, more common is to say, you know, if you're going to participate in this, whatever this is, here are the rules for which we all agree to abide by. And if you don't, here's the ramifications and here's how you can, you contact someone to say, Hey, this is happening. Can you please make it stop? I want to reemphasize Franny's point about the, um, that the, levels of negative interactions that we saw is not that different from other online communities. Because one thing that was sort of sad to see in um, a lot of the press findings was, or a lot of the, the press reporting was, their takeaway was this open source is really terrible and toxic and everything is just like, you know, Linus Torvalds. And and it makes me sad because I think, at least for me, part of the goal with this data was to, I don't, I don't want to scare people off from <laughs> contributing to open source. And I think it's important to highlight that this stuff's like it, it's not right. it's not great, but it's not different from um, and other online communities. I think open source gets an unfair 
reputation for that. And it turns a lot of people off from it. But like none of it is great because humans are just kind of not nice to each other on the Internet, period, when left unchecked. Um, but being able to see that is is useful. I, I think one important difference, though, between GitHub and other online communities is that if you're like really into ham radios and you go on the ham radio forum um, and you experience negative behavior, your choice is basically, you know, I stop talking about ham radios on the Internet or <laughs> I continue to put mm. up with this. And on GitHub, it's literally like I just go to another project that's not terrible. Yeah. <laughs> and so you have this huge number of people that like actually just leave projects because of it, right? Yeah. At the same time, too, you can't make or instill a change unless you measure it, right? I, that's a known thing. So just having yeah. this data alone shouldn't say, oh, this is a, you know, this is an issue or this is to scare people off, as you said. You know, it should be, you know, something that attracts uh, some change. Being aware of an issue is is the way you in, instill some change. Exactly. Coming up after the break, we get into a heavy topic dealing with negativity in open source. We also talked about maintainers having to be the police and an even more touchy subject, the accuracy of this research. Is this a true representation of the overall open source community? All this and more after the break. This episode of The Changelog is brought to you by GoCD, an open source continuous delivery server from our friends at ThoughtWorks. GoCD lets you model complex workflows, promote trusted artifacts, see how your workflow really works, deploy any version, anytime, run and grok your tests, compare builds, take advantage of plugins, and so much more. Check out gocd.io slash changelog to learn more. And now back to the show. This is a tough subject, not often discussed. The impact of negativity in open source. And sometimes when that happens, people are forced to go into private channels or to enforce their code of conduct and get into very uncomfortable situations. Basically having to deal with these negative experiences that have real consequences to not just the people, but also to the project. And Sometimes people just don't interact or they just don't interact publicly. What do you think? Yeah, um, people can, um, they might withdraw from a project. They might keep working on the project, but start working in kind of back channels. Um, instead of working publicly in the repo, they might start pinging people through email or Slack or other other methods to avoid sort of like the the, microsc the public microscope of yeah. um uh, attention on the work or maybe like risk of like somebody saying something really critical and that ending up being sort of part of the, their public professional record. Well, no one wants that. Right. I mean, if, if, if we were in an issue and Michael called me a name, I, I would probably not want to talk to him ever again for one. And then two, I would just be like not being involved in this anymore. I'm done. Or maybe I wouldn't, maybe I would just take it and just feel stupid. <laughs> what do you think, Michael? I, 
<laughs> what, what are common interactions to like? I mean, is that how you would respond? I mean, what, what do I think is in like you, you want to test this out and have me call your name sure. on the internet? Yeah, sure. like okay. yeah. <laughs> no, I, I think like the like the the kind of top line of of this is that people that experience negative behavior, it, it's okay, I would put it this way. It's really important to deal with negative behavior when it happens at the project level. Um, the, the next point in here is that, you know, the most effective tool here is to ban people. And then maybe even banning people like fairly liberally um, is, a, is a fairly good idea. And one of the, the, the arguments that we hear over and over again is that like, you know, using bans and using other moderation tools, um, they we keep creating a higher and higher bar for like the kinds of behavior that does that. Um, but there are a lot of other negative consequences to not dealing with it. Like, you know, not just the person who's the victim of the behavior, but also everybody watching can just move to another project a lot of the time, or they might, you know, move into private channels, which is like not good for an open source project. Um, and so it, it's just like really important to deal with the behavior, right. To actually moderate it in some way. Um, because if you don't, you know, something like three times the number of people that experience it are, are, you know, potentially also mm-hmm. seeing it and, and they're going to do something as a result. Right. The, the problem with the blocking part though, to me at the banning, the blocking is that somebody has got to be the police and somebody has got to be the bad guy, you know, or, or bad person, so to speak, you know, like somebody, which is okay, but that just means that somebody who may not exactly want to take on the role of of being the enforcer, so to speak, has to take on that role. And that has to happen in every single project, and that becomes that could become an issue just generally. Like, I don't always want to be the bad person and say, hey, you can't play anymore and because you've crossed the line here. I get it that it's needed, but it's hard to be that person. We asked about individual users having the ability to block another user. So, and that's separate from asking a maintainer to go in Mm. and block somebody from a project. So, um, actually the finding is that an individual having the ability to block another user without having to involve somebody else is the part that is most effective at addressing problematic behavior. If you have to ask a third party, uh, we asked about respondents or sorry, we asked about, um, maintainers. We asked about sort of legal, intervention, uh, police intervention, uh, ISPs or hosting services, um, bringing in these third parties at any level is less effective than giving people the power to protect themselves on an individual basis. And that, so I think the findings suggest that you want to move away from having a kind of third party policeman and, uh, give people tooling to be able to say, like, you know, whether or not this person is part of this community or not, I don't want to interact with them. That seems to be so a singular level opt out, basically. Yeah, um, because you know anything that relies on maintainers. Uh, first of all, as you said, it puts somebody in this police role that they probably don't want to be in, um, or that they may or may not want to be in. And it also means that you need to have a really responsive maintainer in order to have any sort of like uh, ability to yeah. have this. Yeah, and you know, there's um, lots of projects where the maintainers are not necessarily responsive on the timeline that you would need in order to address it. It certainly adds one more notch to the job role of being a maintainer. If that were the case, you know, like must also be police. You know? Well, and I, I think that it's like, you know, important for you to think about 
these things in your project. But like th- th- that's a really good point, which is that like a lot of individual maintainers are just not engaged enough in the project to even do that. And and in fact, there's not a lot of other people engaged in that particular issue. So it's really enough for the one user that's seeing this to just block that person or experiencing it to block that person. And that kind of scales, you know, down to all of these smaller projects that don't have as much infrastructure. Um, I'll also just give a shout out to, you know, GitHub making improvements that there, there is a beta tested feature right now for temporary bans at the org level. So mm-hmm. you can kick people out temporarily and it's not so much of a perma ban. And it's, it's a nice way to say like that, that behavior is not appropriate. Here's a consequence, but you're not banned for life. Yeah. I see this finding as being like the people who should pay attention to this finding are people like us, like GitHub, like other platforms it's like a platform level finding. Like this is what we need to mm-hmm. build in order to make sure that communities have the ability to, for people to work in healthy and safe ways. It's not necessarily like at the project level for, it's not necessarily on a maintainer to go build something to do this, right? Like we, the platforms should make this available. Nice. So um, earlier we talked a bit about how this has been covered in the media. <laughs> uh, in that vein, I, I saw an article in Wired um, talking about some of the, the gender imbalance stuff. And and uh, w- one thing that I noticed was that the the metrics that they took from the survey, they were sort of implying were the overall GitHub metrics and <laughs> that the overall GitHub users were only 3% women. And <laughs> so yeah, that's I'll not let, true. I'll, yeah, I'll, I'll let you dig into that a little bit. So can you tell us a little bit about the, the gender imbalance uh, findings that you found? Um, yeah, so I'm, I mean, they're, they're not good. Uh, it's uh, 95% of the people who uh, gave a substantive answer to the gender question um, identified as men. Uh, and only 3% identified as women, another 1% identified as non-binary uh, it's just like a profound imbalance. There's no other way to <laughs> talk about it. Does this go back to the the pool for which the data represents? You know, going back to the uh, random, non-random question, biased, unbiased, and and this assumes that the the person was on GitHub, right? They were prompted some way to say, "We have this survey. Please take part." Um. Being that it's such a wide chasm between, you know, those numbers, 95%, 3%, 1%, I'm just wondering, given that big of a difference, how how confident do you feel in the accuracy of that? Being, you know, if you took the same and you expanded across all of GitHub and everyone who's ever interacted with GitHub answered, would that still be true? Uh, I don't. So this, the way we sampled was definitely not how you would try to get all GitHub users. Like you had to um, do a really specific set of actions on a licensed open source repo that indicated like sincere interest in open source Mm. in order to make it into the pool. And then we randomly sampled from that. Um, So it's definitely in no way representative of the general GitHub user base. Can you share what those actions might be maybe to kind of give folks an, is um, is that secret stuff? Uh, it's not secret. Um, you had to do, if you download the data set, there's some documentation that has more details than the website. Uh, you had to do something like three clicks um, on a licensed repo or visit three uh, licensed projects uh, within 30 minutes in order to to make it into the sampling frame. And that's because it's really easy to fall into a, a GitHub repo from Google 
and like not really intend to be there. Right. Uh, so we were trying to uh, make sure that we're only getting people who like seem to have a sincere interest in open source. Uh, to get back to the sampling part, there's a possibility that, you know, maybe women are more likely to use open source or be interested in it, but not be contributors. And maybe they felt like when they got invited, uh, we didn't actually mean them. Like maybe they don't consider themselves a member of the community or something. So they thought like, Oh, we probably don't want to hear from them. Like that's possible, but um, like an imbalance this large, I, I think that this is probably pretty, pretty accurate for open source. And it's consistent with, you know, basically all other research that's been done on open source communities that it, um, sent like between one and 10%. Yeah. The reason why I asked this question isn't to, isn't to deny the accuracy. It's because it makes me sad. That, 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 <laughs> it that took difference. me a few weeks to like process that finding. Yeah. I mean, that's <laughs> really sad to, to that's, if that is representative of the truth, that's like, we've got to do a better job. Well, understanding how the selection works now, I'm not that surprised because I have, I mean, I've seen these other studies that show between one and 10%. And, um, I mean, I, all of them have like different issues in their sampling, but like at no point has there ever been data that shows that open source is as good as even the rest of the industry, which is only 22%. Um, and just like from my own experience, when you work in these communities, as you work your way up the kind of engagement stack from user and casual contributor and then eventually into leadership, the numbers just get smaller and smaller and smaller and when become like less and less visible um, it, it, with with a couple, you know, individual communities as, as really important exceptions um, that should probably be studied so we can figure out how to do this better. Um, but, yeah, I, I think, yeah, I I'm very I'm unhappy about the number, but uh, now I can see why it would be there. So if someone has my reaction, and this is a question for all of you here, you know, what can we as a community do? What are some some ways to to fine tune that ratio to be a bit more less less of a chasm between the two? One thing that made me happy from the reaction was there are a couple of people who offer to prominent open source contributors who offer to mentor people that are trying to get into open source. Um, I think from the React community, there were a couple of people. So I thought that was really nice just for people to be sort of like aware that if the numbers are that bad, like it's really important to keep an eye out for people that are interested in contributing but might need a little bit of an extra push. Um, that's not obviously like super scalable, but I thought it was just like a nice human response. Um, and yeah, I mean, stuff like about the, like for me, the documentation part of it ties really strongly back to this of, document your stuff and make it as transparent as possible so everybody understands how to get into it. That was why we did the open source guides earlier this year too, so that it doesn't feel like open source is, is this big, like shadowy process. And, um, you have to talk to the right people to understand, um, how it works. Um, some of that ties into also the findings around people who had given or received help from a stranger in open source and, um, seeing that women were less likely to ask for help from a stranger because, there's sort of the assumption that that's I'm not allowed to do that or whatever. Yeah. Um, so just really going out of, out of your way to knowing that, and it's not just women. I mean, like there are a lot of people who are hesitant to contribute because they don't feel comfortable asking for this sort of thing. So um, making processes really explicit and tra- transparent uh, might bring more people out of the woodwork than you would expect. That was my take on it. Yeah. This last point here too, half of contributors say that they're 
open source work was somewhat or very important in getting their current job or role. I mean, that's in the same area we're talking about here in terms of this data being shown on the, on the website, but like that, knowing how crucial open source is in general, but then also at the micro level of me or someone else getting a future job or the, the, the dream job, so to speak, how important it is to be able to interact with open source makes it far more, even more important to, to uh, be welcoming, you know, because it's that important mm-hmm. to, to them as a person, but also generally to tech in general. I, I've also seen data that shows that people with open source experience make more money on average too than other average developers. So it's also important there. Yep. I think one of the answers to this problem, you can see in this data a little bit, right? Like there, you have the differences between men and women on some of these, um, some of these things. And, and some of the biggest gaps are in code of conduct and welcoming community that this is just far more important, um, to women. And I've certainly experienced this as like a conference organizer where you're trying to invite and get people out. And especially when it's, you know, the first time that people are being visible, women are much more cautious about this than men are. Is it the code of conduct and what it says, or is it the fact that it's there because somebody knew it was important enough to put there and take the time to figure out what that community's conduct should represent? I feel like at this point, if you don't have it, you're making a different kind of statement. It's not that, <laughs> right. that, like, not that the, the code of conduct makes a statement. It's actually not having it as the statement. <laughs> and that's a really negative statement. Well, I don't know if it's... Um, let me let's use the change log as an example because like we literally as of like maybe a week two weeks ago three weeks ago maybe uh, and today is June fifth uh, WWDC day by the way uh, Apple good stuff whatever but we just recently put a code of conduct in and that's not because we're idiots it's because we didn't think we really needed one we're a podcast primarily a group of po- podcasts a newsletter so we didn't really have a community uh, and we've actually had a membership slash community for a while now and for me my paralysis and i'm not sure if this reflects jared's opinion but for me my paralysis around it was like i don't know the first step to enact one do i write it by hand do i uh, adopt one from another community that that best represents me kind of going on a rabbit hole here but the point i'm trying to make is that like even us i would imagine like we're pretty close to open source we realize how important this is only recently did we enact one and you know i I don't feel like we were behind the curve. I felt like we did it when we needed to, you know? You know, we wrote an open source guide about that. Just saying. <laughs> Maybe I didn't read it yet. <laughs> one of the neat things about the um, code of conduct findings, we didn't um, highlight this in the write-up, but um, I, I kind of wish we had, was that it has this reputation of, being controversial because there's a lot like some loud people on the internet who uh, really, really hate them. Um, but our findings show that they're actually not controversial. Uh, so we, we allowed people to say, to say about all these things, um, in that table that, that you're looking at, uh, from response maintainers all the way down to contributor license agreements. Like, is it very important to have it? all the way to doesn't matter either way, all the way to very important not to have it. So we allow people to say like, I really, really don't want to see this on a project all the way to, I really want to see it. Uh, and only something like 4% of people said it, they, it was important not to have a code of conduct. Like the vast majority of people either 
really want to see them. They say it's important or they're kind of indifferent about it. And that includes men. If you throw all the women in the data out, that's still true. Um, so they're, they're broadly popular. You're not actually going to dissuade a lot of contributors um, from participating if you have one, even though there's this sort of like reputation on the internet that it, it's sort of a, you're taking a side in a culture war. Like mm-hmm. most people actually are like pretty happy to see one or they don't care either way. So it seems like a, a, a good and easy way to make your community welcoming to the people who care about it. And it's not going to turn away other people. Well, I think either way it's, it's really about opening the door, right? Like it, like you said, if, if people are indifferent, then they're not going to stay or leave because of it. But there are going to be people who don't come at all if you don't have it. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And it's not just codes of conduct too. I mean, I think there's also just a broader cultural issue of, I, I can only speak from my experience, so I guess I'll just do that, but of, of sometimes like wanting to have permission to do something or feeling like you're not good enough and unless someone says you're good enough to do a thing and then you, and then you're okay to do it. So it's, it's not like for me at least, like, it's not like I wouldn't speak at a conference if like, it's not like if I see a code of conduct, it's like, oh great, this is the conference for me, but it's more like, well, am I qualified as a speaker? Is that okay? And so for me, like one of the big takeaways from something like certain groups wanting um, processes clearly spelled out or documentation is just like really encouraging people when they're on the fence to just say, yes, you can do it. Just do it. And um, and, and just being really supportive and encouraging of people that might be kind of like hovering in the sidelines, unsure whether they want to participate or not. Like everyone can play that role day to day of if you see someone with potential, just encourage them to get out there. Yeah. And and I think to, to call back to what we were talking about earlier with sort of signaling to everybody watching that, you know, you care about this kind of thing, it, how you handle that, that pull request and that discussion around a code of conduct says a lot about the project because while it isn't controversial among most maintainers, as this data shows, it is controversial among 4chan members, uh, who will show up and just start saying stuff and like, <laughs> Either you allow that to become like a giant thread that derails the pull request or you merge it and close it and lock it and say, I'm sorry, but that's not our community. Go away. Um, yeah. And, and that, that sends the right kind of signal, right? That's a good takeaway. The, the people who are really loud about this stuff are not actually representative of the silent majority. Coming up after the break, we talk about the relationship of businesses and open source how they use it, whether or not they encourage contributing to it. We also examine how open source has become the cultural default in many cases, what people actually value in open source because you might be surprised and what you can expect from the future of the survey. This episode of The Changelog is brought to you by our friends at Microsoft and Azure Open Dev Conference, their upcoming no-cost live virtual conference that's focused on showcasing open source technologies on Azure. Engineers are looking to bring more of the open source tools they know and love to the cloud, but often need a grounding on what to look out for and what to expect. The fastest way to learn is to see live demonstrations and get time to Q&A with experts in the field. Microsoft is providing this at no cost. It's a virtual event, which means you don't have to travel anywhere. 
reserve your spot today head to azure.com slash open dev that's azure.com slash open dev to register for this free live event from microsoft it is on june 21st 2017 and now back to the show exact quote you have michael but you had a quote on the bonus episode the season one the behind the scenes episode of request for commits about the relationship of businesses and their relationship with open source and how it's severely skewed with so much as this data shows of open source contributions happening on the job it kind of reflects back onto that idea that more companies should help sustain open source and that doesn't mean just money it might mean the 10% time or the 20% time being allowed towards open source. We've been talking about this on request for commits. What do you all think about this finding? Do you, are you surprised? Are you enlightened? I, I have a couple of things that are surprising about this. So one is um, I was really surprised that the number of people that found certain policies unclear, um, that was really interesting to me. And, and I'm very curious, like, do they contribute anyway when it's unclear? Do they use it anyway when it's yes. unclear? Yes. Yeah. yes, they do. <laughs> yeah, yes, they're, they do. they're okay. actually separate questions like what's your employer's policy and what do you do? <laughs> and uh, <laughs> when, pe- when the people who say that it's either unclear or they don't know what the policy is, their practices are look like those of people who say their policies are supportive of it. So in the absence of any like clear rule, people will do it. Um, and I, I think that that like demonstrates like you kind of need to in like modern software development is like open source is pervasive. You can't not use it and you need to fix things if they don't work. So if you have any justifiable way of doing it, you you will do it. That's what I took from that. <laughs> so, see, I, I find that really fascinating. Right. So they're doing it anyway, but I, it's not like they're being encouraged to do it. Like, I think that the people that say that they have a permissive, that means that their employer has been very clear that they can and that they should. Right. Uh, um, it's, uh, it was people permissive means either your employer is encouraging of it, which was like about a little less than half, like 46 percent, um, or they were accepting of it. Like they wouldn't tell you not to do it, but they wouldn't necessarily like go out of their way to encourage it. So what, what, what is the disparity between people encouraging the use of open source versus the contribution to open source? Mm, I'm sorry. I don't quite understand the question. (laughs) So, so we, we, so using open source applications and using open source dependencies are, are incredibly high, right? So you have, um, the permissive, uh, which I think covers, uh, encourages and allows, right? Yeah. Yeah. So, um, that's really high, right? It's in like the, it's in like 80%. Um, but, uh, it drops considerably when you talk about contributing. Um, so clearly there's like a huge disparity here between people that are being strongly encouraged to use open source versus like, and then they're not encouraged in the same way to contribute back to open source. Right. Well, specifically, the question asked about non-IP policies on non-work contributions. So it might be that people don't know what their IP policies specifically is. Um, It may not mean that they're not allowed to do it or not encouraged to do it, but like that specific policy, they're not super 
familiar with or that there's something about non-work contributions um, that are different. We actually didn't ask about contributions on the job, which we should have. That was an oversight. And next year we'll ask about it. So that, does that mean um, they're, they're on work time, they're contributing to non-work open source, and they're not sure about the their ability to contribute to non-work it, open it source could even, while working. It could even be off work, though, because people have employment agreements that say that everything that they produce right. is owned by the company. Whether they're working or not, or even the hardware they're using mm-hmm. to do I think so. It's really, yeah. I mean, it's really telling, right? It's not surprising that everyone's using it, but it's unclear how you're able to contribute back. And hopefully that will change. So should that just mean that that employers should make it a bit more clear about their the the company's relationship with open source and the permissions around it? Well, but but to come back to your point, right? You were saying that they should dedicate some amount of time, and, and I don't think that we're at even the place where we can say that they should be dedicating some amount of time because what this looks like is that employers are encouraging people to use open source and depend on open source at, at a rate that they are not <laughs> telling them to contribute back. Right. Anything. Yeah, that's certainly um, true. And so, like, just getting those level might be enough, like, without, you know, dedicating four hours or whatever, right? Mm-hmm. Like, maybe we should be setting our goals a little bit differently. I mean, they definitely go hand in hand. If you don't have the policy and you don't know what it is, then you're definitely not going to just contribute before you know what the policy is. Yeah, if you don't know the policy or if there is one, you're not being encouraged to do so. Yeah, I mean, it sounds like people are anyway. For And and I think that that's kind of telling, too, because they're, they're, it looks like they're doing it because the, there's no other way, right? Like, there's no other way for them mm-hmm. to get this bug fixed in their critical dependency unless they have this policy. So they just kind of ignore it. I, I did notice that there was a restrictive, like, like, people that actually are restricted from contributing and using. And that's the most offensive to me, even though it's a really small number, because it looks like I, I can't eyeball the numbers for, from the graph, but it's either two or three times as many people that are so people that means that there's like you know a bunch of people that are being highly restricted from contributing to open source but are not being restricted from using it in any way which is just offensive (laughs) yeah the last one though is a is a bit telling around uh, the last insight at least open source is the default i mean we kind of did you really need to do the survey to find that out though (laughs) but you know what i thought it's fun to back up your claims with data though right of course we need that what i thought was really interesting about this is it wasn't that people necessarily thought open source was better among most parameters besides security like people actually think proprietary does better in a lot of situations and yet vast majority of people will still seek out open source options which says something a little bit more interesting to me of it's not just like Oh, people recognize that open source is better than proprietary and that's why they do it. It's like they don't even know if it's better or not. But for some reason, they're just going to keep using it anyway, because it's so like culturally default at this point that like that's just what you do, that it doesn't even matter what the quality is. And that kind of says something, too, about the state of where we're at with open source. Like everyone is going to use it. But it's also free, though. I mean, (laughs) but interestingly, people didn't value the cost that as much as um, it wasn't even. Cost was not even one of the top reasons why people, um, what people value in, in choosing software, which is also really bizarre to me because you would think that those two things would be explicitly tied. I think it goes even, my, I mean, this is just me guessing, but like, I think it goes even beyond that of like, people just do open source because they hear that's what they're supposed to be doing. Like people aren't really thinking twice about what, even that it is open source. They're just like, this is, or the cost or anything. It's just like, this is what I do. I take this software. It comes from magical 
berries somewhere and then I just put it in my software and that's it. <laughs> they heard React was cool and so they used it. <laughs> right, exactly. Like, and that, I mean, that matches up at least with anecdotally how I understand a lot of software gets made. Yeah, with stability, security, and user experience are the highest of the importance graph, yet 72% say they always seek it out. And that kind of says to some degree, regardless of stability, security, and user experience, because as you said, it's the cultural default. And you can see cost is kind of like down there in the middle somewhere. Yeah. I mean, uh, I didn't answer the survey. I wasn't one of the lucky ones who clicked five times and uh, <laughs> went through the special portal. So I didn't get to answer this, but to me, I pay for things, right? I pay for things if they, if I value them, I pay for them. I don't, I mean, I care how much it costs, but cost matters, but eh, you know, like I'm not seeking it for free. It, it's, it's like, if it matters, you pay for it one way or another, whether it's uh, involvement or actual dollar exchange. Yeah, it, it probably matters like kind of where in someone's life cycle they are. Like I bet if we like made this plot and split it out by whether people were students versus employed, mm, that's true. like mm. uh, maybe cost would be that's higher. True. I, like, even if I didn't, uh, if I didn't have the money to pay for it and I still valued it, I'm like, well, I can't buy it. So I'm a student. Yeah. Yeah. I haven't looked at that. Someone should look at that. Um, I bet it's interesting. So something like 20% of the data is um, people who are students. Well, that's a good point right there. I think is that uh, someone should look into this is like this. So this data that you've, you've pulled back is all open source. The GitHub repo is linked up on the website, opensourcesurvey.org. So it's not like you can't go and find it. You can download the data and, and just get started. There's a, a big download button at the bottom of the site. Um, so this, what we've been talking through is your findings of this. Like this is your insights from this. So mm-hmm. that doesn't mean that somebody else might go and, and that doesn't mean the questions changed, but someone can go back to this data and, and kind of pull back more insights than the five you've shared here. You've dug into quite a bit, shared a lot of details, even came up with some, some graphs to kind of share, uh, share all the data points that we've talked through. Uh, yeah, the, the whole point is that it's an open data project. So we hope people will use it and learn from it. There's a lot more in here than we've covered. A lot of really fascinating things that we found that uh, didn't have room for in the write-up. Uh, and so we please do go analyze it and tell us what you found. Um, we, we really want to know how people are using it because we'd like to do this again. We want to know like what was useful, what didn't turn out to be useful, how are people using it. Can we expect like maybe uh, this to be a once a year thing, twice a year thing? I mean, Open source moves fast, so everybody's just trying to keep up. So should we do this once a year, twice a year? What's the what? What do you see the future of this survey becoming? Um, you know, so it was a ton of work. <laughs> uh, <laughs> so um, I've been sort of thinking like once every two years, but um, if we if we get I was being like ambitious, sorry, uh, if we get a lot of um, if a lot of people are using it and uh, a lot of people are finding the either the insights or the raw data really valuable. And there's I, people have ideas about things they want to know over time or new questions they want to ask. Uh, I think now that we've done it once, like I have a pretty good idea of like how we could change how we did it so that it would take less time. Well, the insights part seems to be the most time consuming, actually conducting or, or allowing somebody to take the survey seems to be a pretty passive type of role. Actually, you know, the hardest part was writing the survey uh, because I didn't have like I wasn't familiar with uh, kind of the existing 
research on open source. So I had to go learn about it and I had to go write a whole 50, 54 question instrument uh, with a lot of help from our uh, collaborators in academia and industry. I don't know if we've talked about them yet, but um, like tons of contributions from uh, people who are doing a lot of active research in this field. But that was actually the, I think the, the most time consuming part of it. Well, now that the, without having done all the work you've done, of course I can have this point of view, but now that it's there, do you see the questions needing to change very much to continue the survey? Does it have to stop or is this something that just sort of can kind of keep operating on the, the random selections, as you mentioned to Michael's question a bit earlier, can the same 50 question, 54 question survey keep going to kind of keep gathering and kind of keep a, maybe a real time pulse on the results? Uh, yeah, I mean, that's a good question. So one of the things we've tried to be conscious of is that uh, open source is a community that's over surveyed. Uh, and so we don't want to add to yeah. the, the noise, right? Like people in open source are constantly getting emails, asking them to take surveys. Uh, and I mean, Partly, we hope that um, we can cut down on some of that uh, uncoordinated research um, efforts uh, by providing one single high-quality data set that everybody uses instead of trying to, like, piece together their own. Um, you know, we don't want to, like, bother people with research unless we think that these things are actually changing over time. But if, uh, if there is... Like if people want to know, like we saw this last year, we want to know how it's changed a year later because we've invested a lot in, say, our documentation efforts. Uh, that That's certainly something that we could consider doing. I was sort of thinking that we would do a whole new, every time we do this, we just ask completely different questions um, to try to like open up new, new avenues of research. Um, but it, it kind of matters what the, the research community and what the open source community wants out of this data. And obviously, open source is hopefully in like two years from now, there are going to be so many different things that open source will be facing given the pace that it changes at. Yeah. So before Adam closes out the change log here, I'm just going to do a complete takeover for RFC. Please do. Please do. <laughs> Not yet. So RFC, we, we, we focus on open source sustainability. And I'm staring at this figure about what open source users value in the software. So why are people actually using open source? And so we know that there's just these widespread sustainability issues. And the first things that they impact that, and the things they impact the worst are stability and security, which are the most important things to people. Um, and conversely, the classic business models around funding open source rely on support or new features. And support is ranked the absolute lowest thing that people care about, with innovation being second to that. <laughs> so <laughs> it's just, it's just my, like, like literally the things that people care about and how we've traditionally yes. looked at funding are at opposite ends of the spectrum. I was hoping someone else would notice that. I'm glad you pointed that out. I think it's funny because like almost always when people talk about turning an open source project into a quote unquote real business or whatever it's like oh we'll just offer support and services and it's like actually people don't really care <laughs> well that should be a clear indicator to anybody who's going that route to say that's probably or could be the wrong route to go mm-hmm. i mean it'd be nice to 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 do this in a year and see if that number changes much though because i'm very surprised that those two are the lowest 
We'll see if support gets lower. <laughs> I, mean, I don't know if it could get any lower. It's like it's literally right above less important. So it's. Uh, well, that, that scale is that's not the full scale. Uh, I think one thing to keep in mind is that these things, we know these things actually do vary quite a bit by uh, community. So actually, th- this particular set of questions was um, taken from uh, some ongoing research by a lab over at um, Carnegie Mellon that studies differences in the values of different ecosystems. Um, and so they've done this in a, among a number of communities and found differences in what different uh, open source communities value in the, the things that they built and in the, their own processes. And so, you know, this is sort of overall, if you aggregate all of the projects together, this is what falls out of that. But there's probably significant variation between communities uh, in what they value. So like, you know, for your individual project, it may not be the case that support is the least important thing. But when you aggregate everyone together, that's how it falls out. Any call to action for those listening. So we got lots of people who listen to this show, a lot of people who care about open source, either they're contributors, they desire to get into new languages, they listen to the show for various reasons, uh, at all chasms of developerhood, so to speak. Um, you know, what any core call to action could you give? I mean, obviously, go check it out, pull down the data, play with it if you're a data scientist or anybody to sort of gather your own insights. But what other call to actions can you give to the listening audience? I really hope that um, open source projects use some of this stuff to figure out how to get new contributors on board and how to strengthen their communities, because I think there's a lot of really good insights around that. So open source survey.org. And I'll also mention that at the very bottom, you can subscribe to survey updates. So you can put your email address in there, click the button subscribe. And I guess that means that we'll obviously have to do another show like this because this was super fun. <laughs> I mean, I love just kind of roundtabling this, uh, you know, kind of digging through everything and, and getting to hear different perspectives. It's been a lot of fun. So Nadia, Michael, Franny, this has been fun. Thank you. Thank you. The Changelog is produced by myself, Adam Stachowiak, and also Jared Santo. We are edited by Jonathan Youngblood, and our theme music is produced by the mysterious Breakmaster Cylinder. You can find more episodes like this at changelog.com or by subscribing wherever you get your podcasts. Thank you to our sponsors, Sentry, TopTal, GoCD, and also Microsoft with their Azure Open Dev Conference. Check that out. Also, thanks to Fastly, our bandwidth partner. Head to fastly.com to learn more. And also Linode, our cloud server of choice. Head to linode.com slash changelog. And we'll see you next week.